You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 164, The Invasion of Norway, Part 2, British and French Invasion Plans. This week, a big thank you goes out to Benjamin, Jeffrey, Hank, Bakefur, and Bree for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. Germany would be the nation that would invade Norway in April 1940, but only because the British and French got cold feet with their plans to do the same thing. Their reasons were different. Instead of the German desire to invade and control the entire country to prevent it from being used by Britain and France, The Allied plan was built around the desire to slow the export of Swedish iron ore to Germany. But both nations, at the core of their plans, was one simple fact. They did not care what the Norwegian government or the Norwegian people wanted to happen. All of that was secondary. For the British and French leaders, there was another reason to bring the war to Norway. It would keep it away from France. Many of the discussions that occurred on the British and French Supreme War Council during the early months of the war, were around how Germany's attention could be pulled somewhere, literally anywhere, to delay the expected attack into northeastern France. The goal was to take the pain, the suffering, the death, and the destruction that war caused and shift it to somewhere else and onto someone else. In this case, the people of Norway and Sweden, who had no say in the matter. Publicly, They would find other reasons for their actions. The stoppage of iron ore, the uh, protection of Norway from possible Russian aggression, the assistance to Finland from Soviet aggression. But those were not necessarily the real reasons for the planned invasion. This episode will discuss those plans, why they would not put them into action, and then the state of British and French forces on the eve of the German invasion. Concrete British plans for some kind of intervention in Norway date back to around April 1939, when a report was published by the Admiralty around the importance of Norway in a possible Anglo-German war. This report drew heavily on the writings of German Admiral Wolfgang Wegener. Wegener, who had written a book in the late 1920s which discussed how control of Norway was essential to the success of a German war against Great Britain. The control of Norway would allow the German navy to break out of its narrow access to the North Sea, and instead it would be able to utilize the entire Norwegian coastline to stage naval vessels out of 
making it far easier to threaten the Royal Navy and British trade. The benefits to the German Navy were obvious, and so was the threat to the Royal Navy if it could be achieved. But before the war, the general belief among the Admiralty was that the only way for Germany to invade Norway was through a seaborne invasion, and that that seaborne invasion would not be possible due to the overall power and strength of the Royal Navy. There was just a, a lot of faith in the Royal Navy to prevent it from happening. After the declaration of war, the focus of planning shifted from preventing Germany from invading Norway to how to proactively prevent the flow of Swedish iron ore to Germany. A key pillar of the British and French war effort in the early months of the conflict was economic warfare against Germany, and they believed that Swedish iron ore was absolutely essential to the German war effort. They did not have great information about what was happening in the German economy, but British economists estimated that if the flow of Swedish iron ore could be stopped for a year, it would cripple Germany's ability to wage war. They were wrong about this, but that's sort of beside the point. Initial discussions revolved around using diplomatic pressure on Norway to try and get them to stop allowing iron ore to flow through Norway and the Norwegian port of Narvik. But as early as September 18, 1939, Churchill, as First Lord of the Admiralty, would make it clear to his staff that if the diplomatic approach did not yield the proper results, then the next option would be to start violating Norwegian territorial waters to interdict the trade directly. During September, the plan that Churchill favored was the laying of British minefields along the Norwegian coast, which would obviously cause problems for merchant ships that were moving between Narvik and Germany. But this very passive approach to trade interdiction was not really Churchill's style, and so he and others at the Admiralty began to advocate for more action. This would be a common thread among all of Churchill's war plans in both world wars, he was at the head of a group of British leaders that believed that the best way to fight a war was through proactive action against the enemy, even if those actions were small, even if those actions were risky, even if those actions had really big downsides. There would be no immediate action against Norway, though, but in November, the Soviet Union invaded Finland, which caused a new series of discussions about what should or should not be done about the overall situation in Scandinavia. The possibility of a British or French intervention in the conflict between Finland and the Soviet Union was discussed a bit back in their Winter War episodes, but to review very quickly, there were many discussions in late 1939 and early 1940 in London and Paris around what could be done to assist Finland more directly in its conflict. Any action would almost certainly depend on getting troops, infantry troops, to Finland, but there was not an obvious way to do this, or at least to get them to the places where they were most needed, which was central and southern Finland. For both the initial movement of troops and then supplying those troops, it would be far easier if, instead of using a purely nautical supply route through the Arctic Circle, a Norwegian port, say Narvik, was used, and then a supply route was established across Sweden. But this kind of action would need the cooperation of both Norway and Sweden, who were both terrified of the fact that if they were to help the British and French, Germany would immediately invade the southern edges of their countries. It was also, of course, possible that such actions would cause the Soviet forces to also attack into Norway and Sweden, which was also not desirable. In British and French planning, the possibility of a war with Russia was understood, but it was not as much of a concern as it probably should have been. It would probably be too much to say that they didn't care about the ability of Soviet military forces, 
But the discussions that occurred and the recommended actions that could have been brought against the Soviet Union and could have brought the Soviet Union into the war on the side of Germany make it clear that in those discussions, both the British and French leaders drastically underestimated the impact that the Soviets would have on a war if they entered it. As Halifax would tell the British ambassador to Turkey in February 1940, the British government, quote, were not disposed to declare war on Russia, but at the same time were not disposed to be deterred from any action that might suggest itself to us for fear that Russia would declare war on us, end quote. The way that they discount Soviet actions flirts with being comical, with possible intervention in Finland not even being the most bizarre scheme that would have resulted in Soviet entry into the war. In the end, the only thing that would really prevent any of these plans from happening was general hesitancy on the side of the Allied leaders. And in some ways, they were saved from the massive mistake of attacking the Soviet Union only by Germany's actions in Norway and Western Europe. One of the challenges with providing aid to Finland was that it was difficult to scrape together enough resources to be actually impactful in the events in Finland, while also, you know, making sure that Germany didn't invade France. And perhaps quite tellingly, the vast majority of the planned troops that were to be sent to Scandinavia in all of the plans that were circulated would never actually make it to Finland, with the majority of any troops sent either staying in Norway or Sweden, not actually getting to the front lines. Now that may seem odd, that most of the troops sent to help Finland would not actually be sent to Finland, but it was mostly due to the real reasons that such assistance would be provided, and it all came back to Swedish iron ore and trying to pull the Germans away from France. The theory was that if an expeditionary force was sent to Norway, and then possibly to Sweden, it did not actually matter whether or not they made it to Finland. Such an action would prompt a German response, which would take some time, and then might delay the attack on France, with any postponement of a possible spring 1940 attack, giving both the British and French more time to prepare, and it would give them more time for the economic war that they were pursuing to have a negative impact on Germany. From the beginning, the theory was that even a small initial force sent to Norway would result in an escalation spiral with ever greater numbers of troops being required due to Germany's commitment of forces. Churchill would write about this, quote, As soon as Germany saw that we were laying our hands on the iron ore from Narvik, she would take action against southern Scandinavia, which would give us full justification for the larger operation, end quote. This was pitched as a benefit of the plan. The more Germany sent to Norway, the less it would have for France. The French government and military were huge fans of this plan. And in fact, the French Premier Daladay would directly propose a similar plan in mid-December 1939 at a meeting of the Supreme War Council. The plan that Daladay presented would involve a joint British and French expeditionary force landing in Narvik and then moving into Sweden to capture the Swedish port of Lulia. And when Swedish iron ore wasn't going through Narvik, it was going through Lulia. With both of these ports under Allied control, the flow of Swedish iron ore would be completely halted. This roughly aligned with the plans already being developed by the British military leaders, with serious British planning occurring as early as November 1939 for armed intervention in Norway. The chief of the British Imperial General Staff, Sir Edmund Ironside, later recalled, quote, I was searching for some method by which we could divert the attention of Germany from her offensive strategy against us, which must soon be set loose upon France. 
The first inklings of a possible expedition against Norway came before the Chiefs of Staff Committee in mid-November. It came from the planners in the form of a project to help Norway if she were attacked by Russia. End quote. Churchill would make his pitch to the British War Cabinet in mid-December, that this was a good time to enact some of the plans, stating that, quote, We had everything to gain by the war spreading to those countries, Norway and Sweden, so long as we retained our command of the sea. It would give us the opportunity to take what we wanted, and this, with our sea power, we could do. End quote. On December 22nd, the decision would be made to not pursue the path of invasion, at least for the time being and instead to focus on increased diplomatic pressure on Norway and Sweden to try and slow the movement of the iron ore. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the first week of January 1940, a diplomatic note was handed to the Norwegian ambassador in London. It used a few recent examples of Greek and British merchant ships that were sunk in Norwegian waters as examples of ways in which Norway was not meeting the expectations placed on neutral nations to prevent the misuse of those territorial waters. From the British perspective, this note was written to provide a warning to Norway and to prompt them into greater action against possible German intrusion on their waters. The Norwegian perspective was completely different, though, and they viewed the note as signaling a threat to their neutrality. One of the common tactics used by belligerent nations during wartime was to take tiny mistakes in accusations and then turn them into massive diplomatic incidents that they then used as an excuse for war. The Norwegians were concerned that this note that was just provided to them by the British government was the first step in that process. But in the immediate aftermath of the diplomatic discussions, the Norwegians did not actually have anything to worry about, because the plans for action against the iron ore traffic, either through invasion or mine laying, had been shelved. The reason that the actions were not pursued was primarily down to the concerns of British leaders that any action around Norway would lead to some kind of disaster. 
The decision to not pursue the invasion also came on the heels of a report provided to the War Cabinet in early January, which stated that if the expeditionary force was going to be successful, it needed to be far larger than previously planned. Instead of a few thousand men, the belief of the chiefs of staff was that it would require two entire infantry divisions, a tenfold increase in overall commitment. This larger unit size was almost certainly a more realistic expectation of what an expedition into Norway would require, and as would be proven by later actions, the British and French militaries were at this stage of the war not really organized enough to carry out large, complicated plans like what would have been required for a large expeditionary force into Scandinavia. The staffing experience simply did not exist, and it would take time for the skills and experience to be developed. The simpler mining plan did not have the same upside as well. It would have been very much executable by the Royal Navy. They had been laying minefields since the start of the war. But it would have destroyed relations with Norway without the same level of benefit of truly halting the movement of Swedish iron ore into Germany. This all meant that by the end of January, all plans for action that would have violated Norwegian neutrality were shelved, only to then magically reappear in late March. Unlike during the earlier discussions, things moved very quickly, and over just a few days in late March and then the early days of April, important decisions were made in London and Paris. The two governments would agree to move forward with plans to place mines in Norwegian waters to stop the flow of iron ore traffic. A few days before these mines were put in place, the governments of Norway and Sweden would be notified, and they would also be told that the British and French governments were taking this action because they believed that they had the right to stop the iron ore from reaching Germany. This note was originally planned to be sent on April 1st, and the mining would start on April 5th. Although this time frame would later be slightly changed, and the note would be delivered on April 5th, and the mining would begin on April 8th. Along with this mining operation, the idea of landing troops in Norwegian ports also resurfaced, and was added into the plans for the mining expedition with very little conversation. This would include troops landed not just in Narvik, but also in the Norwegian ports of Trondheim, Bergen, and Stavanger, and with the plans for some of these troops to then move into Sweden. During the earlier rounds of planning and discussions, there had been endless conversations about these kinds of landings, and the commitment of troops had been one of the primary reasons no actions had been taken. And then in late March, they were just kind of thrown into the plan, with very little conversation. On the British side, the expected German response to these actions was that they might take control of some areas of southern Norway to be used as maybe air and naval bases to hit back against the British and French forces. But at the same time, General Ironside recommended that the plans be made to withdraw two or three divisions from France just in case there was a larger German response. A larger German response was discussed in a variant of the plans that was called R4. R4 would be activated if the Germans invaded Norway before the British and French arrived. As part of this plan, the same basic landings would be made, but their emphasis would be on maintaining defenses in the Norwegian ports in which they landed. The only offensive action would be in Narvik, with the goal of securing the railway from Narvik to the Swedish border. Along with these plans and plans for contingencies, the initial commitment of troops had also continued to increase. With the early planning of a few battalions, by late March, the operation had grown to more than four entire divisions. This represented a total of 100,000 British and 50,000 French and Polish troops. There would also be a large commitment of Royal Navy resources to help support the landings. 
This massive increase in required troops had been part of the continued planning that had occurred among the military staffs during February and March, planning that had continued even after the decisions of January and December had been to not pursue any immediate action. That's what staffs do. They plan for contingencies, and one of those contingencies was for the plan to be reactivated, which it was in late March. The growth of the forces needed to complete an operation and how it grows over the planning period is kind of a common theme in military operations, with high-level plans sometimes making it seem possible with a small number of troops, but then that number grows as the plan becomes more detailed, until in this case, a few thousand turns into 150,000. But what seems evident in all of this planning is that many of the inhibitions of December and January were suddenly gone, even though the overall situation in the war had changed very little. Supporters of the operation like Churchill largely still supported it for the same reasons he had before, with Churchill saying, quote, Once ashore, we should have security valuable prize not only in the possession of about a million and a half tons of iron ore, but also in our occupation of the harbor, which would be the, of the greatest use for naval purposes. Even if the railway had been sabotaged, our forces should install themselves securely in the port in the hope ultimately we might persuade the Scandinavians to give us railway facilities for a further advance. End quote. Now, while men like Churchill were now supporting the operation, the major difference was that those who had halted earlier efforts were simply more muted in their concerns and less firm in their resistance to the idea in late March when compared to the earlier months. And so, without any push against the plan, those pushing for actions in Scandinavia suddenly got their wish. You know, even men like the British Foreign Minister Halifax, who had, you know, been very strong with his concerns during earlier planning, actually ended up supporting this idea, because he was concerned that if he did not, the French government would fall, introducing instability into the alliance. With a plan of action agreed to, at 7pm on April 5th, another meeting would occur between the British and French embassies in Norway and representatives of the Norwegian government. The reason for the meeting was for the delivery of an official note from both the French and British governments. The note claimed that the Norwegians were under too much pressure from Berlin and were no longer able to act independently, as they should be able to as a neutral nation. The note went on to say that the governments of Britain and France could no longer tolerate the movement of war-critical supplies to Germany from Scandinavia. Then, to quote a bit of the note, it was to, quote, notify the Norwegian government, frankly, of certain vital interests and requirements which the Allies intend to assert and defend by whatever measures they may think necessary, End quote. The note then laid out five reasons why the British and French felt that they had to take the actions that they were about to take, with the fifth being the most important because it was in the fifth point when the British and French governments claimed that they were actually working on behalf of neutral nations like Norway. They were helping and they just wanted to make sure that Norway was not being taken advantage of by those big bad Germans. The note would close by saying that they believed that they had the right to, quote, take such measures as they may think necessary to hinder or prevent Germany from obtaining from those countries resources or facilities which for the prosecution of the war would be to her advantage or the disadvantage of the Allies. The shipping of Norway, Sweden, and other neutral nations is attacked and destroyed almost daily by German submarines, mines, and aircraft in defiance of international law and with deliberate disregard for the loss of life involved. The Allies will certainly never follow this example of uh, inhumanity and violence, 
and when the successful prosecution of the war requires them to take special measures, the Norwegian government will realize why they do so, and the Allied governments feel confident that this fact will be duly appreciated in Norway. End quote. Now, by claiming that the Norwegian government was under German pressures, the British and French were essentially just saying that they could do whatever they felt was right without considering the thoughts of the Norwegians, and that the Norwegians would kind of just have to trust them. What was not included in the note was any kind of information about what the Allies planned to actually do and when they planned to do it. While the note was being prepared for delivery, starting on April 5th, various forces of the Royal Navy began to leave their ports to begin their pre-invasion operations. Several different groups of ships would leave Scapa Flow to begin mine-laying operations while the home fleet was prepared for action. The heavy forces of the Royal Navy were not required for the initial plan, but they would still be prepared to act against any possible German action. Now, what none of the British and French leaders knew was that at that exact same time that they were preparing for their action, the Germans were as well. And in fact, the Germans had already put into place their plans for the invasion when various supply ships left German ports on April 3rd. We will catch up on the German plans for the invasion next episode. 